problem with the world is we're all the problem. That's it. That's what I think. The reason the world is so jacked up is because everyone's got problems and stuff they haven't resolved in their lives. And uh, people are just going around spreading that pain and trauma onto other people. Some do it on a large scale, you know, in terms of wars and political battles. Others just do it on a daily basis by being, you know, vengeful or lashing out or whatever it is. But I think it's like, you know, you got to deal with your own shit before you can go out there and change the world. You got to deal with your own shit. And uh, anyone who's been to relationship counseling, you probably know that. You go in there thinking the other person's the problem, right? Well, when they do this, it makes me, it's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they just sit there listening, you know, with a clipboard, nodding while they look over your shoulder at the clock. Hmm? And then the other person's like, yeah, well, when you do that thing, that makes me feel. And their therapist is still just nodding like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but then ultimately it all comes back to you. It's always you, you know, you got to figure out how you can be better and how you can deal with your shit in a healthy way and process it and learn to make yourself happy. And then if you can make yourself happy, you got a shot, you get a shot at, you know, being in a decent relationship and a healthy relationship and finding some joy in your job and your work and, appreciating things on a daily basis, but we always think it's someone else's, someone else is the problem. And that's the problem. I think we always think it's someone else. That's why our world is jacked up. You see it now on a global level, you know, this politics of, you know, convincing people that their problems are someone else's fault. It's done on a massive level. Be afraid of the others. Be afraid of people who don't look like you and sound like you, who don't be afraid of people who don't have the same religious beliefs as you. You just keep saying that over and over and over again. And then people who are lost and looking for something to connect to and something to believe in, that makes sense to them. And now they feel emboldened because they found another group of people who believe the same things they believe. And now they're a force. They may even storm the Capitol. Of the United States. But I'm telling you, you got to deal with your own shit first. It's not about the world, but you dealing with your own stuff. And, you know, <clears throat> I've talked to a lot of comedians. I've hung out with a lot of comedians. And uh, it's amazing. The great thing about stand-up comedy is that you get to go inside your own life first. And, uh, and you just pull it out on stage. And the reason why people laugh is because they connect to this stuff. Even though it's really personal and it's your experience, people laugh because they can relate to it in some way. And that's the powerful thing about stand-up comedy, I think, in particular, is uh, is the humanity of it. Of like, yeah, man, like we're all in this together. I don't have the answers either. And the comedy is in not having the answers most of the time. You know, that's where it starts. And uh, so anyway, um, this episode, episode 71... Of the Generators Podcast here on the Comedy Here Often Podcast Network. Um, we're going to talk about anxiety, something that you may find yourself um, having large amounts of these days with everything going on. I'll be honest with you. 
<clears throat> I have it too. And, uh, you know, you're wearing masks all the time. You're in stores. Sometimes I just go, I gotta get the hell out of here. I can't be around. I don't want to be around people. I don't want to this. I don't want to have this mask on anymore. I just want to go outside and breathe fresh air. And I've, I'll have those moments and I follow protocols. I believe in it, but sometimes it's just a little overwhelming. You're just like, I can't, I can't deal with this. And that's just a new anxiety created from this, you know, this way we're doing things right now to battle this thing. But I think everyone walks around with a certain amount of anxiety. And for some people, it's pretty debilitating. Um, and my guest this week is Russ Kennedy. And Russ is one of those people, um, he's, he's worn so many hats. Um, we may have met just once briefly years ago because Russ uh, went to med school, became a doctor. He's crushing it at being a doctor. He decides, you know what? I'd like to try stand-up comedy. He leaves medicine and becomes a comedian, right? Then decides, now I'm not going to do that anymore. And now he's an author and he's written an amazing book. Um, it's called Anxiety MD. And it's about, it's got some really, really interesting perspectives on anxiety and challenges kind of what um, the medical professionals have been saying about anxiety and how you treat it. And his beliefs um, kind of challenge those, and he thinks you can treat anxiety in a different way, and that it's actually in a different part of the body than we think it is. Fascinating talk. Uh, I, again, I could have went on for hours with Russ uh, just going down that road uh, talking about it, and I think you'll get a lot out of this. I think this will make you think, um, and it may even challenge your own beliefs about mental health and anxiety. And, um, but I think it's something we should, we should be looking into now more than ever. Um, and, uh, I think you'll get, you'll get a lot out of this episode. So, uh, sit back or, you know, lean forward. I mean, I'm not your, 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 your dad. I'm not here to tell you what to do, do whatever you want to do, but, uh, enjoy this conversation with, uh, Russ Kennedy. I am here with... Ross Kennedy, are you? Where are you right now? Are you in? What? I'm in Victoria, B, I'm in Victoria, BC, in my house, in my in my little office, in my home. Victoria is one of the places that I would definitely live. You know, when you as a comedian you travel, and oh, yeah. quite often you go to a place and go, no, I don't think I could ever do it. And there's other places you go to, and you're like, oh yeah, I totally get it. Victoria yeah. is definitely that city for me. I've always wanted to have a place there. How long have you been there? Well, I think I. I started here you know well actually i was born in ontario i was born in brampton and then uh family moved out to bc when i was 10 to victoria and then i got disillusioned with being a doctor so i decided i was going to move to vancouver to become a stand-up comedian and uh our friend damon schritter has got a great joke about that because i used to tour with damon and uh, i would go on first of course and then he would come up and go hey you know uh dr kennedy gave up his medical practice to do stand-up and uh I was worried about leaving my job at Sport Mart. <laughs> I could hear his voice so, saying. Oh that. yeah. Oh no. I love to. I love to. It was one of the guys that I could every time that that we would do a show together. I would always watch his show. Like I would every time. I and I heard a lot of the same stuff, but it was funny every time. But then, so 2003, I started doing stand up at a place here called the Comedy Cellar, which is of course defunct. And, uh, and then to do it, you know, more regularly, I would have to go to Vancouver. So I moved to Vancouver in 2004 and then I started doing, you know, I, I lived there for 12 years and then I came back to Victoria, uh, after after up and kicked my ass for like 
12 years and, you know, went back to being, well, actually I didn't go back to being a doctor, but for a long time in Vancouver, I was like doctor in the daytime. And then I would go out and do stand up at night, which was, which was really fun, you know? And, and I find it really interesting that, that, you know, more doctors aren't standups because basically as a doctor, we're always observing, like we're always observing right. things, right? Where, yeah. you know, even though our patient comes in and they may come in with a pneumonia or whatever, like we're always watching their coloring, how they're breathing, if they're using their accessory, like we're really fine tuned into observation, which is basically what comedians do as well. Yeah, so I'm yeah. surprised, although I know this is a long intro, but uh, although <laughs> uh, the thing about medicine is it makes you think in a very linear way. And the thing about comedy is you have to think it is very divergent. So medicine is very convergent onto a diagnosis and, and co comedy is a very divergent thing. So I think that, you know, often I, I've thought that my comedy was hurt by the fact that I would go in and do this literal sort of left-brained job every day. And then I would have to come out and be this right-brained kind of entertainer. And, and it, it did, it, the two sides of my brain would fight on a very regular basis. So yeah. to answer your question, Victoria is a great city. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Uh, I think that's what you were going with that, right? Speaking of divergent, you were like, yeah, let's yeah. We'll take you around the park here and show you around. Yeah. We'll get to your house shortly. But yeah. over here, we've got some park benches and we've got, yeah. uh, no, I, I feel the same way. Like it's one of the things I love about Bill Burr's comedy actually is yeah. that it's very divergent. He goes down one road with a certain, okay, he really believes this about this topic. And then at the very end, he'll go, but you know what? I mean, when you look at it the other way, and he'll go right back upstream on this thing. And most comedians usually pick one side or the other. Yeah. And it's like, no, no, there's jokes on both sides. So why can't I just do them all? You know, I've always thought that was amazing that he does that. And Louis C.K. is like that too. You know, yeah. Louis C.K. does that too. He takes people down this certain road but on the other hand, you know, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. Then there's this and you can bring out the darkest side of them. Yeah. And that was one of the things about my comedy, too, is like being kind of an upstanding citizen as a physician, um, because often I would have to tell people in the audience that I was a physician because or, or be introduced that way, because if I wasn't introduced that way, they would for the first part of, you know, my set, nobody would believe that I was an actual doctor. Right. So all, yeah. So all these doctor, all, all these doctor jokes that were great. If if they're not buying the premise that I am an actual doctor, they think it's just I'm just sending them up. Yeah. None of them worked. So I would actually have to be introduced to the doctor. And the other thing about that was I never, I don't think I ever really got to saying what I really wanted to talk about. I did stand up for like twelve years, and um, you know I could say funny stuff, but I always felt restricted by that kind of. Well, he's a doctor. I've got to be this upstanding, you know, not that, that, my, that my, my stuff was, you know, overly, you know, dirty or blue or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, I really felt kind of restricted by that same kind of linear way of thinking. Right. And uh, so it would have been curious to see what my career, if you can call my career, comedy <laughs> career, what it would have looked like had I been able to say all the stuff, the, the crazy Louis C.K. stuff that's actually in my head. That's interesting because I felt somewhat the same way. I used to work with kids at like Boys and Girls Club. So right. I would have sometimes parents show up to go, oh, we're going to go watch Trent at the comedy club. And I'm like, oh, Christ, it's it's so-and-so's parents from summer day camp. It's like, totally. and I'm up there like, ah. yeah, so I hooked up with it. You know, like just, yeah. well, I felt the same thing. I felt like I can't be that same guy. And so I yeah. always kind of felt like the, the handcuffs were on me a little bit. And uh, But I want to get into this with you a little bit to start when you were younger, because I've kind of deducted this looking back on my own childhood and why I struggled in certain right. academic areas. Yeah. And one of the things I struggled with was like science because of what you mentioned about 
things kind of being black and white and we and we put things in this box and these things yes. are these things. I realized I really struggled in those areas because I didn't find any room to make an argument or to present a different perspective. I did well in things like English or history where you could make a thesis and then I can go find evidence to support my thesis. And it's like, okay, you did a good job of supporting that. Here's a mark based on that. But the black and white one and one is two. I don't know. My mind wouldn't let that in there. It was almost like that wasn't enough. Well, what do you mean? It's just two. How do we? How yeah. do we know? You know? I, how did your mind work when you were growing up? If any of this makes sense, I seem, I seem maybe well, no, I'm rambling it. No, it absolutely totally makes sense because uh, you know I think comedians we have an artistic mindset, so we we want to find the part that doesn't fit. Right. Like that's, that's the part that doesn't make sense to us. And then Jerry, I heard Jerry Seinfeld being interviewed the other day and he said, it's finding what doesn't make sense to you. And then making the audience see that incongruity through your eyes so right. that it kind of makes sense to them and it makes them laugh. So, yeah, but for me, you know, basically my dad was schizophrenic and bipolar. So there was always, you know, and, and a lot of the time he was fine, you know, like a year at a time, he'd be fine. And then he would kind of lose his mind. Mm -hmm. and wind up in the hospital, the mental hospital. So my, my childhood was kind of chaotic in that respect. So I, uh, I think that's where you, you develop this artistic sense because you do think exactly what you were saying. There's got to be something more here. Right. You know, I, you know, I look at my friends who got stable parents and, uh, and I'm thinking there's got to be something more to this. Like, this is just, this doesn't make sense to me. And I think that's what happens to us when we get, you know, traumatized or Kevin Fox talks about this too, about, you know, comedians are always feeling like they were outsiders at some point in their yeah, lives. Definitely. You know, So it just forces you to look at things in, in ways most people just take for granted. Yeah. So science is one of those things. It's like, this is taken for granted. This is exactly what it is. And this is the how you have to take it. But if you have an artistic mindset and you always want to find the exception, you know, and which is what a lot of comedians do, that's what makes it funny is like, well, this taxes are horrible, but you know, we get to do have all these great things from taxes. Well, we don't want to think about that. We just want to think taxes are horrible. So you establish a premise yeah. and then you go with that. And I think that's why, you know, it did well in English. But for me, because my house was in chaos, my, my, you know, I've got a, a good story about this. Like my grades in school were dismal. Like it was just like, I, I was a, a strong, I would say C minus student all through, all through school. And then uh, there was one day, one day I was uh, working a merge in the hospital and one of my old teachers came in and, uh, and I, you know, I was his, his attending as an intern. I was one of his attending positions. And I came in and said, Hey, Mr. C, uh, you know, do you remember me? And he looks at me and he goes, you know, rusty. And it's like, yeah, like, like I'm a doctor now. And he's like, you like the guy who didn't <laughs> even know where Africa was on a map. But, you know, the guy's like, is that Australia? That, what? Is, that This is guy's going to save my life? This guy, yeah. Because I was in school, I was dumb, man. Like, it wasn't until I was about 18 or 19 and my friend Don McKnight, who's a, a trial lawyer here, he, he and I were best friends. And I thought, well, if Don can do it, you know, and he really encouraged me to go back to university and that kind of stuff. And he says, you know, like you, you're, he says, you're a bright guy. You, you may not know it, but you're a bright guy. So, so Don really encouraged me to go back to school. And he was the one that really that's how I wound up becoming a doctor was, was mostly through my friend. And he said, look, you know, you got to go back to school. You got to use this brain of yours because 
you know, otherwise you're going to feel frustrated for the rest of your life. So going back to your original question. Yeah. I think the comedians, I think we're right. We're very right-brained individuals. Yep. So left brain analytical stuff doesn't really appeal to us that much. Yeah. I think you're right. You don't see too, too many accountant doctors, you know? Yeah. Right. It's right. I also feel too, like I feel bad sometimes for kids because it can be such a crazy time based on what your, your, your home life is like. Uh, maybe you don't excel in certain subjects. You, your confidence is not strong. You're gauging your own self-worth and your intelligence level based on how you're scoring in these subjects. Totally. And you realize afterwards, like there's so much more out there, but you got to get to this pile of stuff first before you ever get exposed to this a whole other world of thinking. And, and I, and I you know, you, you go come from a smaller town. It was like 30,000 people where I grew up. So like, this is how we learn. So if this yeah. doesn't fit you, then we don't have any other clothes to give you, you know, like it was that thing. And, and so I go, oh my God, I just feel like I want to tell kids like, look, if you haven't found your way yet, if you haven't found your tribe or your community or whatever it is, like just hang in there. And eventually you can get to a place where you'll find people or a, a method of thinking that like, oh, yes, this totally makes sense. You know, but they got to sift through all this other shit first to get to it, you know. But they don't know that they don't know that there's this whole other world out there, because I, I remember being in school going, this sucks. You know, this sucks. This is because there was part of me, I think, inside of me that knew I was smart. But there was another part. And I think I did so poorly in school to get attention from my parents, you right. know, because they would have to pay attention to me because most of the attention went to my dad. You know, and I, I talked to my friends who have like alcoholics for parents or or parents who are like extreme narcissists or whatever, like all the attention had to go to them. And, and that's how they train the family into thinking. So, you know, you wind up thinking you don't, you don't matter, yeah. you know, and I see that a lot with comedians as well. This, this feeling of never being heard as a child, you know, having a sick parent or, you know, having chaos in the household. It's like being on stage, being with a microphone. Now it's your time to get fricking heard yeah. because you yeah. were never heard as a child. Yeah. So this is your chance to kind of go, hey, this is what's going on in me. So I think it's that combination of having that right brained artistic uh, part of our, 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 our makeup, as well as having some trauma. You know, I think trauma, you know, I heard you and Sean talk about, you know, racism and stuff like having some trauma makes you think in a different way. It forces you to kind of soothe yourself in a way and find something in your mind that allows you to to feel comfortable with yourself. Yeah. Otherwise, like you're saying, if you're stuck in this in everyone else's mold, of course, you're going to feel you know, left out. Of course, if you know, if you're a right brain kid in a left brain world, uh, which a lot of comedians were, boy, you know, because, you know, as, as a, a comedian myself, when I would go into the green room, like just about probably every second show that I did, one of the comics would come up and go, you know, hey, I got, uh, you know, I think I might have chlamydia or, or hey, you know, uh, I've been having headaches. Uh, I can't sleep or I can't do this or I can't do that. You know, so I would like do consults and then it'd be like, and now come to the stage, Dr. Rose, and I was like, and I go, okay, I'll be back in a minute. And then I go, I do a set and I come back and I go, you know, I think we should probably do a 24 hour urine. We should probably do an ultrasound of your kidneys, that kind of stuff. You know, so I would come off stage as a comedian and then have immediately drop back into doctor again yeah were you that person at parties because i always say as a comedian like you don't want to tell people you're a comedian but you would have got it both ways you tell them you're a comedian you tell them you're a doctor either way someone's got a question for you someone's saying something awkward either make me laugh or can you look at this mole on my back yeah my shirt up here nice to meet you if you can get the shirt up you know 
I, and I actually used to have a joke about that trend. I used to, people would come up to me and they would say, you know, like when they found out I was a doctor, what about this mole? And then of course the doctor and me would go, well, that's a melanoma. That's bad. That's really bad. Have you got anything else? Do you got a sore throat or something? Cause that, that is, that is, that's deadly. What you've got there. You better get that biopsy on Monday. Right. You know, and they look at me and I go, no, it's fine. It's just your basic severia keratosis. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. That guy's also a comedian now, huh? but he scared the shit out of me with that. Yeah, don't talk to that guy. That guy by the yeah. cheese. Yeah, don't, don't go to that guy. <laughs> yeah, and it's amazing. It's it, you know, it's but it's amazing how you know how insecure. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm talking to you here. It's a, not that you're insecure, but just as a general rule, comedians are you know kind of insecure beings. Yep. And I always found it really curious being that insecure. How do you get the guts? You know, when you're already feeling on your heels a bit yep. in life. How do you get the guts to stand up there, grab a microphone and talk to people? And early on, um, I mean, I would see people early on who would do their first night when I hosted uh, like, you know, amateur night at Yucks or something like that. And I would see people that would come up and they had some talent. You could see they had some talent. They would then they would come off stage after getting quite a few laughs and go, that was terrible. I can't believe how badly I did. And it's like, no, man, you actually did or woman. You know, you actually did really well. And then I would see others that go up and would just eat it, you yeah. know, for four and a half minutes, miss the light, blow through the light, you know, and then, and then come off going, that was awesome. And I go, you know, they're supposed to laugh, right? <laughs> what did you hear when you're up there? Oh, so the, the level of delusion, like, like the level of, of psychopathology and stand-up comedians. I mean, that should be my next book, I think. That's amazing. Well, I think you're, maybe you're onto something too about, for some people, maybe it's not even about getting the laughs. It's just about being heard. Yeah, I get, I get to talk and the rest of you get to listen. And yeah. I'm on an elevated stage with a microphone and a light on me. And this is yeah. the most attention I've ever gotten in my life. Your laughter is secondary. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just here for me and getting this stuff out and being looked at and heard. And well, maybe that's enough of them, you know. So, uh, But it's interesting, too. I remember listening to a Mark Maron podcast once and he talked about how trauma from childhood, often we are left to try and put the pieces together ourselves because people, we have these massive gaps from these seismic events that have happened in our life. And then as children, because we're trying to make sense of it all, which is also what comedians do. This is just yep. trying to make a story to connect these dots. And he, and he said, like, that's what we've done. And I remember talking to a therapist years ago and he'd said to me, he said, he goes, yeah, you had to do that throughout your childhood. And he goes, you've also made a living from it now. Like, right. you know, in your comedy career, he goes, but that cannot sneak into your personal life. That yeah. same mindset of, well, this event happened and let me give a backstory as to why that event happened. It's like, well, we don't know that to be true. And I thought it was yeah. a really interesting insight. And I kind of think about that all the time. I don't know if that makes sense. I'll come back to you. Oh, it does. You know, I mean, part of what I, what my whole theory on anxiety is that it's not in the mind actually at all. It's reflected by the mind. But it's old trauma that gets stuffed down into our body. Because when we're kids and we get these traumatic events, we just absorb them. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when your dad's an alcoholic or, you know, your mother's an extreme narcissist or whatever. Not that that was my, my situation, but there's a lot of people that grew up with like trauma, like my dad being severely mentally ill. You just, it just, as a kid, you just absorb it. Well, what happens to function, to stay functioning? I believe that we have to stuff it down and it just gets lodged in our body. And then it just resonates there until you actually deal with it. So the mind actually kind of just makes sense 
of what happens in this trauma that, that sits in our body and creates this negative feeling in us. So the mind being a, a compulsive meaning making make sense machine, it takes this negative feeling this old the, of the old traumas that are stored in our body and it makes a story out of them that's consistent with how it feels. So it makes a horrible story over the horrible feeling. And then the, the horrible story accentuates the horrible feeling, which of course accentuates the horrible story. And then, you know, I've got a degree in neuroscience as well. So what happens is that we go into our emotional brain from our, you know, our thinking brain, our prefrontal cortex, which is up here. And then there's the emotional brain, which lies below that. And then there's the brainstem, which kind of communicates with the body, which lies below that. So as soon as you drop into trauma brain, you lose your rational, you're, you're, you're like your OJ driving the Ford Bronco. Like you're not thinking rationally anymore. You're just thinking emotionally. But the worst part about that is that we don't realize that we've lost our rational brain. We think that we're thinking normally, but actually we're, we're, you know, we're thinking with one hand tied behind our back. So that's, and I think that's the problem is that we start making sense of things. We don't have the reasoning ability to see that these things are false. False things appear more real. And one of the things I say about anxiety is it makes us overestimate threat and underestimate our ability to deal with it. When actually people with anxiety are some of the most resilient people that I know because they've had to deal with a lot of trauma in their childhoods, basically. Mm -hmm. So that's my theory. And that's, you know, and I know it sounds weird. And I know it's, you know, from someone who has a, you know, a doctorate in medicine and, and a degree in neuroscience and developmental psychology and that kind of stuff, the scientific part you know, kind of when I start talking about, you know, this energy is stored in our body, I want to have a seizure because it's just, it's just not how I was trained. Right. But it's just so much how I see it. And it's just so much when I, you know, I've written this book and, and I get these messages every day going, you know, finally, somebody can explain to me what's going on. Because if you try and use the mind to explain the mind that's fractured, you can't do it. You have to find some sort of common ground as to why people have this, you know, this chronic fear of whatever is going to happen in the future. And I explained it to them in that, look, it's an old trauma that's stored in your body. It hasn't been, it hasn't been unearthed yet. Mm-hmm. So it's still going to sit there and resonate. You know, it's like a hot potato sitting in your chest or your throat or whatever. And your brain's going to make sense of that. So when your brain makes sense of it, then that then the anxious thoughts come, but the anxious thoughts are are more of a, a a symptom than they're actually the underlying cause of the disease. So the book is really like turning you know psychology specifically psychiatry on its head because they they do believe that you can fix the, a think a feeling problem with a thinking solution, and I don't think you can. I think you need both. I'm not against therapy. I really think that we need to to develop what Dr. Dan Siegel, uh, interpersonal neurobiologist Dan Siegel calls a coherent narrative of our lives. We need to understand what happened to us. But that's kind of, you know, that's kind of popcorn. What we really need to do is unearth this trauma that we're holding in our system Mm -hmm. from, you know, the fact that you were beaten as a child or physically, emotionally, sexually abused. That gets stored in your body. You know, that gets stored in your nervous system. And unless you bring that up, one of the little things that I say is you got to feel it to heal it. So, but you have to be able to support yourself through that too. And that sort of leads to what you were saying early on is where do you get the support from? Because right. what we also do is we also underestimate ourselves. So if, if, if I'm underestimating myself and I'm the one that's supposed to heal me or help me heal, 
that's really not going to go very well because if I don't think I have the, it's like the old saying, I wouldn't be a member of any club that would have me as a member. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So, so that's, and that's what the book is about. Really. It's about changing the paradigm on how we treat anxiety because, you know, people are getting so anxious now with COVID and Trump and all this stuff, you know, it's really about centering in yourself. You know, and, and I'm also a yoga and meditation teacher. I, I'm 60. I turned 60 like a week ago. I know I don't look like it, but uh, my body feels like it. Wow. And my body feels like it. Congrats, yeah. so I've, done a lot, I've done a lot of stuff. Yeah, I've done yeah. a lot of stuff. So it's, it's really, you know, that's what the book is about. It's about creating a different um, shift on how we treat mental illness. My wife's a somatic trauma therapist, so I learned a lot of stuff from her. You know, she has a... Um, a degree or a diploma or whatever they call it in somatic experiencing. So basically we take our old traumas, we find where we feel them in our body and that's where we focus our attention. You know, that's, that's the younger part of us that needed that attention that felt, you know, alone or marginalized or, or hurt or abused. That's the part of us that we have to talk to, not the intellectual part that's, you know, 60 years old that knows what's gone on. It's that, it's that emotional part in our body. And, you know, so she, she watches her instructional videos on, you know, how to bring people into their body. And I'm always over her shoulder, like, okay, I can use this. <laughs> I can use this. Stuff. What was that last so, part? What was the last part? Yeah. No. Okay. Sorry. My interrupter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's really about, um, it's really about connecting with yourself. And I think that we, we live in this neck up society where, Bad feelings are supposed to be, you know, shopped away or interneted away or porned away or, or, or distracted away from. Yeah. And, and we never actually feel it. And you got to feel it to heal it. If you don't feel it, allow yourself to feel it. You can't process it by the same token. If you feel like you're, you're not strong enough to process it, right. which when, when you're anxious and you're a child, you don't feel you, you, you get transported back to that same place when you get a trauma. One of my, one of my favorite sayings is all emotional overreactions are age regressions. So if you see somebody freaking out, they're probably regressing back to a similar time in their childhood that you just evoked in them. So I see couples and they go like, my husband drives me crazy. He does this. He does that. It's like, well, it's not really your husband. Your husband is basically showing you a traumatic pattern from your past in your father. And that's, what's triggering you. Your right. husband is not the cause of the problem. The cause of the problem is this old trigger. So I know I'm doing a lot of talking here. But no, no, no. It's good. I find it I fascinating. I love all this stuff. So I get passionate about this because I really want to change the way that uh, mental illness, specifically anxiety, is treated because I don't think what we're doing now is really creating long-term solutions. I think cognitive behavioral therapy is helpful. I don't think it fixes anything, though, in the long term. People right. feel better in the short term and universities like it because they can quantify it. You walk in your score, your anxiety score was 67. When you hear we're 12 weeks later, your anxiety score is north 34. You're great, you know, but they don't take into account that a year later, you're probably back to the same anxiety score you were before. And you're feeling terrible because you've gone through this extensive program that was supposed to fix your anxiety. Right. And now you're just as bad, if not worse, as you ever were. Yeah, I agree. Well, I, what I find amazing about myself, because I've started you know, meditation maybe about six, seven years ago, and I was amazed at when you just literally sit still and don't provide any stimulus for yourself, the thoughts that come through your head and you notice them and note them. And you're like, yeah. you know, from the most mundane of I got to take chicken out for supper to like a childhood memory. It's amazing once we're still. And so that was really enlightening to me and a powerful thing. But also 
even when you said like the conscious mind is aware of certain things, you're yeah. like, I realized my nervous system has a quick reflex. Like sure. it will go back to old patterns like that, especially in a stressful time in a traumatic time. It's like that is right there underneath the surface at all times. And so yep. I really, really have to be mindful of it. Like really without even like, but before I blink, I realized like, wow, that was like, that was a blink of an eye. And I went to that thing. It becomes, it becomes you so quickly. Absolutely. And that's it's such a perfect way of saying that too. It does become you unless you can develop awareness, which is what meditation does. So meditation, what it does, it allows you to have that horrible thought. Like, you know, sometimes I'll flash back to, you know, my father in psychiatric intensive care or something like that. And, and my, my body will start to constrict around it right away. And it's like, okay, do I, can I just in curiosity, because curiosity is so important when it comes to this stuff. Can I look at this thought in curiosity? Because if you become curious about the thought, you become detached from it. Because, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, one of the things that I say in the book all the time is that if you can see it, you don't have to be it. Right. right. So, and I think that's what meditation does. Meditation, what it does is it, it shows you that you don't have to believe everything you think. You know, you don't have to sort of take it in because there is that urge of our minds to kind of go, hey, we have the answer over here, over here. And it gets louder and louder and louder. So the thing about meditation and people say this to me all the time, it's like, I can't meditate. Like I can't hold a thought for more than like, you know, or or stay away from a thought for more than, you know, five or 10 seconds. And I said, the goal of meditation isn't so that you don't think it's so that you observe your thoughts and you get to a point where you see your thoughts And you don't have to be them anymore, which is exactly what you just said. So when you see it and you can see it in objectivity, then you you don't, your your body isn't going through all this cortisol, epinephrine, all this rush, this flood of physiological alarm. And then when you get that physiological alarm, it shifts you into what I was saying before. You go, you drop into emotional brain. So as soon as we get this physiological alarm in our body, evolutionarily, if you know, 80,000 years ago, If you are, you know, if there's an opposing tribe that's going to come in and try and kill you, or there's a predator animal, you don't need to know how to, uh, how to fix your relationship with your grandson, you know, at that, you you know, basically what you have to do is get the hell out of there. So we're evolutionarily programmed to when we go into survival brain, we don't, we lose blood to our thinking brain because our thinking brain at that point is not necessary for escape. It's not necessary for us to get out. But the problem with that is we have this stone age brain in this digital world. So it still reacts the same way it would have done 80,000 years ago, which is to drop you into an emotional brain where you can't think anymore. Mm-hmm. And then you try and solve it. It's like trying to, uh, you know, having somebody with a knife to your throat, trying to solve an algebra problem, right? Like you're just, you're just not in the right framework to do that. And what meditation does is allows you some, a bit of a buffer between what's, what's actually happening and what's, what your mind is making, making the story of it. Cause it's the story that kills us. It's not actually the, the event itself. It's yeah. the constant story. You know, I've got stuff that happened to me 30 years ago that I'm still processing and it's, and I'm still creating stories around. And I think, again, what meditation does is it allows you to kind of say, Hey, that was a story. And the last thing I want to put in there about meditation is that it just, you know, when people say I can't do it, it's like you are doing it every time, even if you're sit for 30 minutes, which I don't recommend when you start, but even if you sit for 30 minutes and, you know, at minute 15, you had this, you know, you had this point of clarity where you went, okay, 
I'm just going to go back to my breath for a second. That's the win. It's, it's yes. the win is the win is when you bring yourself back from this, the chaos of your mind. It's not that you've, you've been able to kind of hold yourself in this Zen Deepak Chopra state. It's the fact that you went off and then you brought yourself back into your breath or, you know, the feeling in your chest or whatever you use as an anchor point. So that's, I think that's the great thing about meditation. Yeah. And the other superpower I feel it provides is that you're now loaded up for the day. Like I've actually wired my brain to now be when adversity arises and it will every single day, anything from traffic to stub on your toe to, you know, whatever happens, you cannot be in the moment. You can step back from it and actually observe it. And that's the thing I didn't realize. I thought meditation was only good while you're doing it. Like, yeah. oh, what a great reset for my brain. <laughs> Time to start my shit day. And, you know, you'd head out like just like that was that 20 minutes. We're done. But yeah. I realize now, like, no, you're wiring your brain to look through that lens all the time now and not be reactive all the time. And you're right. That's that that saves you so much suffering and so much pain because you don't go through that roller coaster, as you said earlier. Yeah. And I think, you know, Viktor Frankl, um, you know, the psychiatrist that was in the concentration. Yeah, camp, yeah. I've read some of the stuff. It's great. Yeah. Between stimulus and response, there's a space. Yeah. And what meditation does is it expands that space. So if you drive home from work and you're late and you've told your spouse that, you know, I'm going to be home tonight for dinner at 630. I'm going to guarantee you that I'll be there. And then you drive home at five, you walk in the door at five after seven and your spouse goes, you know, you said, you know, at that point you can either spaz back, which is, you know, kind of the normal response, or you can kind of be curious. It's like, okay, this is what's happened. I know they're upset. So what can I do in myself to ground myself and myself and just sort of diffuse the situation as opposed to the battles on now, like the yeah. fights on. For and sure. I think, you know, meditation allows us to sort of get out of that heads up, you know, that, that neck up society that we live in, that we, that, that you can think your way out of a feeling problem because yes. you can't. And, but your mind will try and it will try and relentlessly. There used to be this guy, I, I don't know if you remember, if you're uh, old enough to know, but he had this emu and basically the emu was his own arm. Right. And, and he was this Australian guy and the, the, the emu would start pecking at his head like that. So every time as I was writing the book, I thought, well, what's a great metaphor for, for thoughts? And it's like that emu guy, because he would just like the thoughts just start pecking at you. Yeah. And it's, it's so seductive to go in and explain it because from a neuroscience point of view, when you explain something, you get a little hit of dopamine. Like it makes sense to you. Okay. But the problem with that is that the dopamine's addictive. So you're addicted, you become addicted to your thinking and your thinking is what's causing the problem. So you're addicted, you become addicted to thinking. And then if thinking is caught and your stories and your thinking are causing your problem, you're addicted to what's causing your problem in the first place. So what you're doing is you're just rubbing salt in a wound, thinking that you're making it better and you're just, making it worse yeah exactly what is what role does physicality have in what your book is about because like for me personally like today was a stressful day for me earlier and i was like man i gotta get to the gym i haven't been there in a week i'm like i need to like i need to go exercise i need some endorphins and i i go it was short it was like 30 35 minutes but i felt instantly better when i came back um what what role does that have do you think in the treatment of anxiety just just physicality in general Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, anxiety at its root is it in this neck up society is this being trapped in your head, right? So I think that's anxiety at its, at its ultimate, uh, ultimate root. I mean, other than the alarm that's stored in your body, the, the most common thing that people experience with anxiety, these racing thoughts, right? Yes. So 
we become detached from our body. So once you become attached to your body again, you be, you, you, you feel whole again. Like when you're in your head, there's this sort of lonely, like this feeling like this is not going to help me. Right. But when you, when you get the body involved again, you become this whole being, you feel like your feet are planted on the ground. You're, you're just more resource. And the other thing, there's a lot of things I, I draw attention to when I was a child and my father would go into these deep depressions. So he'd be in his room, like deeply depressed. I wouldn't know what the hell to do, but I didn't feel like I could go out and play road hockey or whatever. Like I didn't know what he was going to do. Like he had some suicidal attempts in the past. And so I felt immobilized. Like I felt like I couldn't move. And I think a lot of us, when we're younger, if we're physically, emotionally um, held in a place and people that have kind of narcissistic parents or alcoholic parents feel the same way that they're kind of, they're kind of held in this environment that they don't want to be in. Mm-hmm. So movement kind of just breaks that cycle. You know, most people will talk about movement being, you know, good for your heart and it does bring, but for me, it's kind of like mind body connection for sure. And it also tells your unconscious mind that you're no longer trapped in that old situation. Because if you look at, you know, the amygdala, the, the structure in your brain that they call the fear center in the brain, it never forgets. So if you have a, a, a bad experience with a dog, like a dog bites you when you're younger, that amygdala, anything that's even remotely close to a dog will fire up. It'll put you in physiological alarm, which, of course, will put you into emotional into your emotional brain and you can't think clearly. And then when you can't think clearly, you can't think clearly enough to see that this is just a thought. Right. Right. So you lose you lose that ability to kind of rationally look at your thoughts because you're not rational anymore. So any any of this this horrible story that you're telling yourself appears real because you don't have access to your rational brain that would kind of go, hey, you know what? You're kind of making a really big deal out of this. And it's really not. And I tell people this all the time. It's like if you ever had a thought and then had the exact same thought four hours later and thought, why did I get so upset about that? Like, yeah. why was that such a huge deal? It's yeah. because of the state of your body. Four hours ago, when you were in physiological alarm in your body, you went into your emotional brain, you lost your rational brain. So of course, a worry is going to appear like it's the worst thing in the world. Now that you're out of alarm and you're back into your rational brain, you can kind of see it for what it is. And, and that's where another thing where meditation really helps you kind of be able to get above the clouds and kind of see thoughts for really what they are. Uh, they're guideposts, you know, they're, they're not, they're not sort of, it's not the Bible. Like it's not, you don't have to do this. You're yeah. just options. You yeah, know, yeah. The, the Seinfeld joke about the kid, you know, the boys when we we're younger and we look at Superman, Batman, all these people, these aren't cartoon characters. These are options for us boys. Like we yes. think this is what we're going to become. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think too, what's wild about, you know, moments in our childhood or for anyone who's been through trauma at any point in their life, I think it's that, it's the instability of those environments because the suffering then is not just when the bad thing happens. The suffering is thinking the bad thing could happen again today. Oh. And so, you know, when, when people are around alcoholics, for example, it's not that they drink every day. Maybe they don't. It's just that a couple of times they did do it and it was really bad. And now you have to think about that every single day. Like what's behind that door today when I go home or yep. for the parent that's you know schizophrenic or has depression? You come home from school, what's behind that door today? And that is immense suffering because it's not even something that's actually happening. It's what we project could be happening once we get to a certain environment. And there's a lot of suffering in that, I think. Totally. You know, and that's the thing. You know, I, I haven't met a person with anxiety, including myself, who didn't make themselves a victim. 
you right. know, and it's a victim to uncertainty. Like if you look at uncertainty, I mean, it's kind of the spice of life in a way. If you knew exactly like COVID, I, I, I was joking with my wife last night and I was saying, you know, every day is like the same. You know, I, I started to call jeans hard pants now because I had to go <laughs> yesterday to see my to see my mom. And, you know, it's like, well, I got to put on hard pants today because I got, you know, sweatpants on every day. So it is this thing where we get into this uh, this mindset that we believe everything and uncertainty, you know, uncertainty and, 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 a, and a stressed brain is just a recipe for disaster. Like it's just and one thing that we hate as children uh, when you grow up in these chaotic environments is uncertainty. So that's why a lot of us are, are control freaks. I don't think I am, but I mean, I have it in certain areas of my life, but I see that commonly with people with anxiety is they, they need to control, which is, you know, when I did um, LSD and psilocybin and ayahuasca, um, not because I wanted to get high or whatever. I didn't start these things until I was like 52 or 53, but I was, it's such a, a horrible stage in my life, like pre-suicidal kind of like, I can't go on like this with, with this date. It's like living with a panic attack for 12 hours a day. Like I can't keep living like this. So I did LSD and LSD was one of those things that kind of separates your ego, your protective ego from who you really are. And I saw that my, my anxiety was actually this alarm that's right in my solar plexus. And it's, it's like the shape of a fist and it pushes up on my heart. So that's where I found, you know, with all my, you know, MD and neuroscience and all that, it was like, it was LSD that kind of showed me that, no, dude, your, your anxiety, what you're calling anxiety is actually stored here in your body. And I don't know what told me this or whatever, but as I was coming out of this LSD thing, it's like, your anxiety is here. Stop, stop trying to figure it out in your mind. You're not going to, it's just making you worse. So the, the clarity on what was, what, what I got from that. And then, you know, for a year after that, after the LSD thing, I was still kind of in denial. I still didn't know what the hell happened. And then I went to see, uh, I went to an anxiety conference, which sounds like a bunch of, you know, nervous people together, but it was uh, Gordon <laughs> Neufeld, who's like a mentor of mine. He's a developmental psychologist. And he said, all anxiety is separation anxiety. That's what he said. And as soon as he said that, I was like, boom, like the whole LSD thing came back and it was like, well, this, this, this alarm in my system, I, I, that's what's causing me to be separate. And then here's where it gets really weird is, um, you know, I did ayahuasca and that kind of thing too, which was just terrifying. I would not recommend that for people who are control freaks. Yeah. Yeah. Because it totally takes control away from you. Yeah. Yeah. You have, not, you have, you have no control anymore. <laughs> I remember on ayahuasca, just, just falling and falling and falling. And I was trying, and the only way I could explain it was, um, I kept trying to figure out the word fall. What, what does the word falling mean? And I couldn't, I couldn't get purchase on anything. Like I couldn't get, I just kept falling and falling. And I was trying to understand the word falling. And every time I try, I get a little bit into the, into what I thought falling meant, I would fall again. And it was uh, just, it was just this repetitive kind of thing. Yeah. So it was just like uncertainty is the worst thing for us to handle. And, and I do believe that that alarm that, that's stored in me is my, and this is like, like where it gets, where the medical doctor gets really woo, but I really believe that alarm that's in me is my younger self. It is that 12 year old that watched his dad being taken away in the ambulance. And that's the part of me that I have to connect with. And ever since I have been doing that, my anxiety is, is infinitely better because I think that the, 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 the density of that alarm, that, that panic and that feeling was just 
the amount of, of attention that that younger self needed to metabolize this alarm. It's, it's still there. I mean, I mean, I haven't completely, you know, gotten clear of it, but it's made more difference than any psychotherapy, any medication, any EMDR, because I've seen, you know, probably 50 plus therapists over like 35 years, you know, from high level psychiatrists to shamanic energy healers. Right. And it's like the only thing that really has started to make a difference is me taking responsibility, not being a victim anymore, and really focusing on connecting with that alarm in my body. So mm-hmm. that's what I do when I, when, I, when I do sessions with people, which I don't do very much anymore, but I find where they feel alarm in their body. I get right. them to go to a, a traumatic part of their past, not the worst thing they've ever done or felt. Uh, and then I say, well, where do you feel that in your body? Because right. a lot of us believe it's in our heads, but no, it actually is sort of, and if you really look for it, a lot of people will find it in their throat, especially people that, that, that can't say, that could never say to a parent or someone else that they, they, they hated what was happening or they felt like they had no purchase or no agency in their lives mm-hmm. uh, ar- around the heart. If they feel this, you know, this, this separation from a parent or in their belly, if they felt like they didn't get enough to eat or whatever, mm-hmm. like it's, it's the patterns that I see when I do this, um, they're quite remarkable when you see that the, the consistency of the pattern with people. And it's, for me, it's just connecting with that, alarm that's sitting in my solar plexus and, you know, putting my hand on it, feel the reassurance of my own touch. You know, one of the things that I do with people is I say, you know, when you find your alarm in your system, and usually it's in the midline between your chin and your pubic bone. And I think that has probably something to do with the default mode network and anterior cingulate, posterior cingulate, these sort of neurological concepts, why we feel our pain in the midline mm-hmm. or in the heart. But that's another story altogether. I won't go all full neuroscience nerd on you, but it's it's finding that and and it's you know reassuring like touching it, finding your own touch, saying to yourself, "I've got you." You know, I know you were alone then, but you're not alone anymore. You know, you're not alone anymore. I have you, yep. and and from you know, like I said, as trained as a medical doctor, we don't get trained on any of this stuff. You know, yep. so if people go to the doctor expecting therapy. We're not trained for therapy. No. At all. Like GPs, especially psychiatrists a little more, but they're even sort of backing away from therapy and going towards more medication kind of consults. Mm-hmm. So it's really about, you know, connecting with yourself. It's really finding that place in your body that's alarmed, that is that holds the remnant of the younger self and showing them that, no, you know, my 60 year old self is now looking after my 12 year old self. Right. You know, and and I can have confidence in that 60 year old self looking after that 12 year old, whereas before I never could. So I think that's that's where I would like to see, you know, kind of therapy go is to go to a more somatic thing. And this is, you know, some of the other stuff that I learned looking over my wife's shoulder when she's learning her somatic therapy stuff. So I try and, you know, I try and balance the science of, you know, my medical degree and my neuroscience degree with this kind of, you know, more ethereal kind of artistic. Um, thing and and that's where the book comes from you know that's really where the book comes from that's amazing I it's all fascinating and I I love talking about this stuff because I for quite a while now I've been saying like people either process pain or they pass it on yeah when I look at the world right now and I look at you know Trump and the storming of the Capitol and when I boil all that down because it can be so overwhelming and you look at you know politics and the history of Democrats and Republicans and conservatives and whatever. But I go at the end of the day, because I used to work in social services, boys and girls clubs. I saw yep. a lot of stuff and a lot of cyclical patterns through families. And I look at someone like Donald Trump and I go, that is a guy who is riddled 
with anxiety, was probably never loved, never held, never told he was enough. And so he's learned to try and find his way through the world by exercising power, by flexing its money, its wealth. That's the way he feels he can control his life and navigate through. And when I say that to other people, they're just like, yeah, that guy's just an asshole. It's like, I understand what you're saying, but I'm like, <laughs> like yeah, that, that, was that, that was a brilliant setup and punch. Man. That was great. <laughs> That was awesome. <laughs> but uh, but I see it. I, I don't know why, because I sit, work with these families and these kids. And you yep. saw, you know, a girl had a kid at 16. Yep. She's still a child trying to raise this kid. She hasn't dealt with her issues. Yep. Now she doesn't have a real childhood. Guess what? Her daughter now has a child when she's 15 or 16. And it just keeps going and going. And they just pass it on down the line. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's another thing I realized in my life was that, we take our parents quite often. We put them up on pedestals that they're always supposed to have the right answers and they were supposed to do the right thing. And how could they not know that that decision was going to affect me for the rest? They were just people doing the yep. best they could in the moment and hadn't dealt with their own shit, let, yep. alone, let alone know how to raise you properly and make the right decision every day. Yeah. No, that's that's totally accurate. And, and you know, that thing you say about the mother when she had the daughter at 16 and the daughter has another daughter at 16. Like you see these as a family doctor, I would see, you know, these patterns that ran through families and and they couldn't see it. And and, you know, my friend Mark Willen wrote a book called It Didn't Start With You. And basically it's all about inter- intergenerational and inherited family trauma. And, you know, he quotes a lot of Rachel Yehuda's work, who's uh, uh, out of Mount Sinai in New York, and she deals with the children of Holocaust survivors. Wow. So the children were never exposed to the Holocaust, but they are, you know, nervous, anxious, sensitive beings that hold trauma that was handed down to them from their parents. So it's, it, it is, it is biological. Sorry, sorry, Ross. Was it, was it passed down through like, like DNA type thing, or was it like not, not just seeing how their parents they're, react they're, on a daily basis? Yeah. That's where they're starting to see that they, they think it's non-coding DNA, non-coding RNA is handing these messages down. The world is in a safe place. Like this is, this is, we're in trouble, you know? And, and some of them, you know, you look at, you look at some of the more ethereal stuff, Um, where people suffer the exact same thing, you know, like somebody um, will get uh, beaten up or or assaulted at 32 and then their child, because I always ask this when I do consults on people, it's like, what were the, what was the biggest trauma uh, in your parents, in your mother's life? And like, well, at 15, she was sexually assaulted. I said, okay, what happened to you at 15? Oh yeah. My uncle kind of, you know, like it just, it blows your mind. It's like when you can't, and it's so obvious to me now, but it's yeah. so as medical doctors, we're not training any of this stuff, like right. none of it, you know? And in fact, it's, you know, when you get seven to 10 minutes with a patient, you know, and that's the thing about me. And I, I, I don't, I, I say that I don't talk about this a lot, but I guess I do talk about this a lot, but I was born with some kind of like clairvoyant, clairsentient ability. So I would see a patient and I could see in them that they were physically abused. Like I could actually, actually, I couldn't, sometimes I could see the story behind it, but a lot of the times I could see that they're physically, emotionally, sexually abused. So, um, cause I'll say that with some of the people I do consults with, what happened to you when you were 14 and your dad is like, Oh, that's when my mom and dad left or my mom and dad got divorced and dad left to, to go to Afghanistan or whatever. And it's like, I would see these patterns in people and I would just have to, and I would have seven to 10 minutes. So it's like, I can't bring up the fact that your father beat you from the time that you were, you know, seven till 12 years old. 
I can't because I've got seven minutes to deal with this. Right. Right. So it's one of those things where and then that's one of the reasons why I sort of retired out of medicine is because I would see these traumas in people and there wasn't really much I can do about it. And, you know, the general response is to give some sort of antidepressant medication. Right. But the problem with that is that it numbs the actual message that's coming up to be able to deal with it. But I'm not anti-medication. Like I know, like if, if you if you're going through a divorce and you know you're a mother of three children and you're in depression, <clears throat> you got to function. Yeah. Like I'm probably going to give you an antidepressant, you know. Yeah. But if you're a you know a 22 year old guy who's just left school who needs a break and that kind of stuff, I'm going to probably try and see if I can get you into some kind of somatic therapy where you can actually deal with the trauma. The younger, the better. Uh, without masking it with medication, because my problem wasn't so much with antidepressants when they when they work when they didn't work. It's when they worked because when they worked, a lot of times people would just stay on them for like twenty years, yeah, and they would yeah. go through life. They wouldn't be anxious or depressed anymore, but they wouldn't feel much of anything. Right. You know, and I don't think that's a way to go through life either. But there are some, and I'm sure you saw it when you work with the boys in the girls clubs. There are some traumas that are just so deep. Yeah. And just so ingrained that it is really hard to kind of recover from those. Definitely. And, and those people, I, I would, I would medicate, you know, it is one of those things. And that's, and that's where the lion would come in. And that's another source of great stress for me was, was, you know, it, can I make a difference with this person or is it just so deep? Is it just so ingrained that there's not much I'm, I'm going to be able to do other than medicate? No, you know, because they are a danger to other people and you've got to consider all these other things. And it was one of the reasons I got into medicine because it just became too overwhelming for me. Right. It was kind of like the green mile in a way. Like you start seeing the pain, right. like you were talking about earlier on, you start seeing the pain so deeply and you want to fix it, which is this compulsion that I have because I could never fix my dad. Right. Um, and he eventually committed suicide when he was 52. So it was like, you know, what do I do? So then I, I thought, okay, well, I'll become a writer. I'll, I'll, I'll get out of medicine. I'll start, I'll heal myself first, which is where the ayahuasca and the LSD and the psilocybin came from. And then once I got to that point, about two and a half years ago, when I started feeling better, it's like, okay, I can write that book now. Yep. Like I can really write that book. And I talked to one of my ex-girlfriends the other day, Robin, and, uh, and she said, and we still have a pretty good relationship. And she said, uh, you know, you've been working on this book since we were together and we were together back in 2006. Right. Yeah. So yeah. it only took me, you know, 15 years to get this thing finally out there. It you takes know? time, so, man. It takes time. I mean, laughed about that for sure. But but yeah, I mean, I think we really do have to look at mental illness in, in, a, in a very different way, because what we're doing now is we're just masking the symptoms. And I realize that we're doing that because we have to function as a society. But what's happening is we're mortgaging our kids. Yeah. What you were saying earlier is because what we don't deal with, the trauma that we don't deal with goes right down into our children. Oh, yeah, I, and, I totally and, agree. And, 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 and they're left at and yeah. they're left to deal with it. It's and, like the, a, it's and the other like thing a, about that too, that go ahead, sorry. Well, the thing that Mark talks about too is that when you heal yourself, your parent actually starts to heal as well. So oh, it's wow. yeah. So it's it's really like it, it, there's really this sort of energetic kind of you know like my flaky ethereal side comes out. So so yeah, there, there, it's it's just I think we really need to look at how we're treating mental illness, specifically anxiety, OCD, that yeah, eating disorders, in a very different way, a much more somatic focus. 
What's amazing, I've, I've read a few books by Brene Brown. I don't know if you've, yep. if you've heard Brene Brown. Oh, yeah. Yeah, love I, her. yeah, I love her stuff. And so she's become a little bit of a rock star, I guess, in, in that mm-hmm. world. And some of the things she talks about in particular are like shame and vulnerability. Yep. And it's so amazing because I don't know if you see it as different based on gender, but I feel men in general, like we are just not vulnerable creatures. Like there's something in us that's been wired to make it look like shit's always okay. Like I, I, I've told this before, like I've had friends of mine going through the worst times in their lives. I found it after the fact, but when I met them for a beer or wings, I'm like, dude, how's it going? They're like, ah, you know, man, same old, same old. Meanwhile, you find out later, shit, they lost their job, their marriage. Like they were going through a terrible medical crisis. And I'm like, you've known me. You've known me for 20 years. You you couldn't sit down and tell me, dude, I am in the shit. Like, here's what's going on. And so that's something I've been more conscious of with my male friends in particular is like, no, dude, like, how are you? No, but like, really, how are you? Don't give me like uh, flames lost on the weekend and, you know, same old, same old. So I don't know if you see any kind of connection or differences with gender in terms of vulnerability or the shame we carry around. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Totally. You know, like it's, it's never a lone gun woman, right? Right. True. Good point. You know, yeah. it's always a lone gun man, you know, and, and it reminded me when you're talking there, it reminded me of that joke that you do about the oil rig guy, you know, like, <laughs> oh man, you know, it's like, oh, like this, it, the, so the superficial nature, like the, the, the inability to go, to go deeper in, on any level, yeah. you know, and, 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 you know, it's bred into us as, as, as men. I think that there's a, a, an evolutionary thing. Because, you know, if you're going on a hunt 80,000 years ago and there's 10 men in, 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 the, in the group ranging in age from like, you know, 14 to 40, I guess, at that time, um, you don't want one of them going, oh, I don't think the animals, you know, we can't, we have a family. <laughs> you know, that guy would get, you know, sent back, go, go back to your, go back to the, the camp and get your knitting, you know? Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, and he's that ostracized whole from the group. And he's, yeah, not gonna find, and he's not going to find a mate either. Like no woman no, at that no, time was like, no. oh, that's, that's the one I want to mate with and have children exactly. for. Like you're out. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I think my big thing with men is that I would love to see men be able to get more vulnerable. But I think this is what I think the problem with, with, um, with men is in a way is that we don't like seeing vulnerability in other men. It's just, it's, it's like the hunt. It kind of weakens us as a group, mm-hmm. right? But here's the proviso on that. If we don't show our vulnerability, we wind up, you know, shooting up something, you know, something comes, something comes up. So it is that I don't think men object to vulnerability in other men as much as they object to victim. So if I say to you, Hey, Trent, you know what? Um, Cynthia and I are going through some issues and uh, I, you know, it may wind up that we're going to get divorced because I, I just can't see it, you know, working like that's different than going, my wife, I don't know if she's going to, if she's going to leave me, I don't know what I'm going to do. What am I going to do if she leaves me? Like she, she, she provides me with all this, you know, that two different things, right? So there is a guttural thing that we have in men. When we see another man being a victim, there is this urge that we just want to just know, no, no, just push them away, whatever. Yeah. So I, my, my version of that is expressing what's troubling you, your challenges in a way that doesn't show you as a victim. Like, not, not a sense of helplessness, like a sense exactly. of, hey, here's what's happening. I think I'm going to be all right, but I just want to let you know, here's what's happening. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. men love to help, right? Like, like, why can't we, you know, with this urge that we have to help, 
you know, mansplain or whatever the fuck you want to call it. <laughs> right. Why don't we help each other like that? If we are so, you know, if a woman came up and said, you know, my car, my car's got a flat tire, we'd be in there freaking things around, pulling yeah. things out, you yeah. know, yeah. but if one of our friends says, Hey, you know what? Uh, I just got diagnosed with something and it's a, it's a real challenge. Yeah. You know, can we use that same level of wanting to help for this? Right. And I think we can, that's the thing. Trent. I, I really do. I really do think that we can. I think that we've shortchanged ourselves. I think what we've kind of the reflection that men are getting, especially, you know, especially with people like Trump and that kind of stuff, men are just getting the, because one of the tenets of neuroscience is whatever you focus on, you get more of, right? right. So we start focusing on that men are bad, me too. And I'm not against that. I don't want to start a whole, you know, shit storm with me too or whatever, but this whole thing, men are bad, men are this, men are that. Then we're going to start seeing men are bad, men are bad. Because if that's your framework, if that's the framework that you have, whenever you see something good that a man's done, it's like, oh, that was kind of good. But if, if they do something bad, then it's like, yes, well, that confirms it. I've been thinking that. Right. That's exactly what I've been thinking. And that's what, so we are becoming this self-fulfilling prophecy. And if we're, if we're not able to help, because it's one of my, one of my, you know, pet peeves is that, is that men just don't get help. You know, they're yeah. three times more likely to be addicted to illegal substances, three times more likely to commit suicide, you know, all this stuff, because we're trained as a kid, you know, big boys don't cry. Yeah, you know, we, we don't, we're not allowed to cry. And the thing about crying is crying changes your neural framework. It changes your body as well. So the outside situation, you know, the person that's died or your divorce or whatever, this outside situation has not changed, but your perception of it because of the tears, because of the way that the, 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 the parasympathetic nervous system works with tears and that creates a different perception in your mind of that particular situation. And that's how you heal. Right. So if you can't, I'm not saying you, everybody has to cry to heal, but I think when you, when you shut that door, when you're not allowed to cry, when it's, when it's, you know, kind of pushed out of you from a societal you know influence, then of course we're going to act out in a different way. Like the energy has got to go somewhere, you know, yeah. it's got to go somewhere. If you're not going to process it, it's got to go somewhere. And I think that's what happens. So, so I would love to see men being, you know, vulnerable without being victims and crying, you know? So, you know, that'll, that'll pretty much uh, put me on the outs for men. For the rest of my life. <laughs> you're not so, getting invited uh, to guys night anytime. Yeah, so it's like, oh, Ross, to do is, this. Ross is lovely. coming over with his tear yeah. speech again. Oh, Christ. Lovely to do this podcast with you, Trent. What do you think happened to Dr. Kennedy's career? Well, he did that thing with Trent McClellan, right? And then he talked about men crying and, and being vulnerable, and, and we haven't heard from him since. That was the end. Yeah. That was the end. That was it. That's all he did. Yeah, he went down the shooter after that. Period. He had no, a good look and all this kind of stuff. Uh, no, man, it's, it's fascinating stuff. I I could talk about this all day because I, I really feel we do also need a shift as well, yeah. and, and men in particular of – because it's that whole thing too about – you know, we armor up and so we don't want to let in the negative emotion or feelings, but also you don't let in the great things then either. You don't yeah. feel love. You never feel loved. It's like, and that's what I mean with the whole Trump thing. And like, that's a guy who's never, ever felt love. And so then yeah. you try and manifest it in all these other exterior ways with the Trump on every building and the yeah. name calling of other people. And, and I go like, that's, that could have been prevented. Like that, that guy didn't have to be built. That could have, you could have built a very different human being if it just his environment or he had done some work on himself. Um, but that's also the challenge maybe is that if you don't think you're broken, you don't go get help because everyone well, thinks, everyone thinks they're okay. You know? Yeah. And that, and that's a classic example of being rewarded for your distraction. 
you know, and that's one of the reasons why our kids are struggling so much with anxiety these days is there's something called the social engagement system in our mind and our body, which is eye contact, facial expression, uh, tone of voice, prosody of voice. That's why comedians, you know, that's why we, we change the prosody of our voice all the time because it's very engaging and it's very warming. But if we don't mature that system, that social engagement system, that ability to interact with each other, we lose the ability to soothe other people. And we also lose the ability to soothe ourselves. Right. So this thing with the kids now, because they're, they're all addicted to their phones. So you don't mature the social engagement system by, by seeing someone on a phone or texting. You mature the social engagement system by real human face-to-face interaction. The face is the only place on the human body where the muscles are attached directly to the skin. And that's because we can show emotion, right? Like, hey, I'm happy or oh, what the hell, you know? And we read that. We're very good at reading faces, but our kids are losing that ability to read each other. Right. And that's where, and and empathy is going down year on year because we're losing this ability to read each other's faces. Right. And I think that that's one of the reasons why the society is getting so cold and our kids are, are feeling so abandoned because they don't feel warm and connected anymore because they're not having these face-to-face human interactions. You know, I used to go out every day and play road hockey with my friends. If they fell and they hurt themselves, I would see their face. If they scored the, you know, we, we've got an overtime situation and nobody can score and someone scores, you see the elation on their face. Yeah. So we're losing our emotional range as a society. And, and I think that's, that's, you know, if we're not building the social engagement system in each other, you know, and man to man is really important as well. Um, the society just gets colder and colder and our emotional range gets narrower and narrower. And then we need to distract, which is my original point, which is about Trump. So Trump has been rewarded for his distraction. So if he wants to distract in anything, he's like, he's got so much money, he can distract into anything. So if you have no consequences for distraction and then you're distracting from pain by, you know, women or money or whatever, then you'll just keep doing it because there's no, there's no, and this is the final the final story in his life, which is no, you know, you can't buy, you can't distract your way out of this. This is the first time in his life that he's actually had to sit with real pain. Yeah, you're right. And then, and has no tools with which to do so because he doesn't at 74 years old. Um, What's, what's a final piece of advice you would give to, to people who are listening and, who feel like, because I think we all have a certain measure of anxiety. I don't know if anyone lives yeah. anxiety free. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty normal thing to walk around with from day to day for different mm-hmm. reasons. What's the final piece of advice you would give to folks um, in, in dealing with anxiety? Is find the alarm in your body. You know, think of something that troubles you and find where you feel that in your body, because that's probably your younger self that was hurt, damaged, um, in pain. And really connect with it. Put your hand on it. Breathe into it. Really make a, a focused connection on finding that alarm in your system. And then really connecting to it. Because that that's how you heal. You don't heal, you know, by knowing what happened. I, I know that my father was, was, you know, crazy. I know that I suffered watching him suffer with depression. I know that. But where I feel it. So it's basically learning how to feel. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and just really feeling the pain of that knowing that you're there to support yourself because that's what allows it to come to the surface. That's what allows it to map metabolize. And that's what allows it to to integrate and heal because oh, you can't think your way out of a feeling problem. You just can't. I get it. I get it. Um, So this fabulous book you've written, where can folks get it? Give us a quick snapshot of uh, what folks will find inside the cover. It's on, it's called anxiety RX right here. So it looks like nice. 
and uh, and it's called Anxiety RX, and it's available on Amazon, and it's um, it's basically a very different look at at my life and the lives of my patients who had anxiety, the ones that got better, the factors that help people get better. So I tell it a very story, even though it's a nonfiction book and it talks about the social engagement system and some of the neuroscience behind it, it's, it's a very storytelling kind of way. So I tell it in, in stories. So, you know, people, the stuff what I get all the time is, is it feels like you're telling my story. Like I get that, I get that all the time on comments and like, this is the first time someone has really shown me what was going on in my mind. And this is, the, uh, you know, I've done therapies, I've done every kind of thing. And this is the first time I've actually seen what the ultimate cause of my anxiety is. And to be honest, I, I don't know why someone hasn't come up with this earlier. Like right. it's so obvious to me, but, um, and it, and it's helped me so much and it's helped my patients so much that I had to kind of put it out there to allow other people to have the chance of, of really getting a shot at, at, at healing and not just, not just managing with medication or whatever, but really healing because it's really that, that underlying pain. So it's my pain. It's the pain of my patients with eating disorders, OCD, all this kind of stuff. Ostensibly it's a book on anxiety, but really it's, it's a book about how to understand your childhood wounding and how to move past it. So Amazon has it. And the thing about me is all you have to do is Google the anxiety MD. Yeah. Not the anxiety doctor, the anxiety MD. And you'll find all my YouTube and my Instagram and all that kind of stuff too. So awesome. and I'm passionate about this. I, I, I really, my, the reason I think I was put on this earth is to, is to give people another option in treating their mental health issues. Awesome. Thanks so much, Russ, man. This is a great conversation. I wish yeah, we thanks, three, three, four hours on this stuff, man. It was no, for sure. So, um, all the best. Take care of yourself and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Absolutely. Thanks, man. All right, man. Cheers. See ya. Bye.